Amen. Thank you, Blake. Thank you, Blake. I don't seem to hear me. There we are. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Um, I don't know if you were here a couple of weeks ago when uh, Janelle was sharing about, um, Janelle Green was sharing about the needs for Kids Gate volunteers, and she shared a, a quick story about working back there with the kids and and how at one point she was talking to the smallest of our children back there and said something along the lines of, now, who is it that made the world and everything in it? And one of the kids just blurted out, Spider-Man! And, and we got a good laugh about it, but then she was talking about the joy of being able to share with children and you know, talk to them about the realities of God and, and what he's done. And I've been thinking about that since she shared it, realizing that, honestly, our goals in every phase of community here are not dissimilar. Uh, uh, whereas I'm sure you wouldn't say Spider-Man if I asked who made the world. I know that one of the reasons we gather here and do this is we're regularly trying to discover who God is and what God is about and what he's up to. And then to see our lives formed around that reality. And, and one of the ways in which we're going to discover God is by looking at Jesus. If we want to know what God is like, we're going to look at Jesus. If we want to know what God is up to, we look at, at Jesus. If we want to know what God's will is, well, we look at what Jesus' intent was in his earthly ministry. That's one of the things that I've just been uh, feeling very passionate about lately is that we keep returning to the Gospels, reading through the story of Jesus, because as Jesus people, we need to know about Jesus. We need to know what he said. We need to know what he did. We need to know how he carried himself in this world so that we, as Jesus people, can carry that out into this world as well. So uh, we're going to continue in our uh, study of the Gospel of Luke today. And if you want to follow along in your own Bible or Bible app, if you'll head to Luke chapter 5 now, please. Last week, we read about the call of Simon Peter, about how Jesus uh, called him into service and how ordinary it seemed at first. You know, he pushed a boat and that was it. But it was a, a profoundly impactful moment that really did bring about a lot of change. I was thinking about all the people on the shore who were able to hear the word of God taught by Jesus and then those who probably got healed because he was there simply because Peter pushed a boat. So much, so much that goes on in God's providence that we don't even think about, even through our ordinary lives. So we reminded ourselves that, that there really is no ordinary. Our ordinary day-to-day lives, when Jesus is with us, is still an important part of our service to him and, and his revelation of God into this world. So now in today's section, we're going to read two miracles that Jesus did uh, that, that illustrate the redemptive goals God is achieving through Jesus's ministry. Through these dramatic, even these moving events that we're going to read about, we're going to glimpse God's will, what God's will is for humanity and really for this world. These are important revelations about the nature of God and his activity in this world through Christ. And ultimately then, when we say through Christ, it's also through the church because we as Jesus's people are representing that into the world. So it reveals what our priorities and what our emphases should be. So let's take a look at these two amazing miracles and see what we can discern from them today. If you're there in Luke chapter 5, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting with verse 12. It says, in one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. When the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing 
You can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Wouldn't that have been something to see? Then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required by the law of Moses for those who've been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you've been cleansed. But despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster, and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Verse 16 is not one that I'm going to be able to dig into today, but man, if you underline things or take note of things, take note of verse 16 and meditate on that. Think about that, that what Jesus was, what, what was required of Jesus in his ministry and, and, and how much more us uh, as his followers who are less than. Okay, so in the story here, Jesus is in an unnamed village, and he has an encounter with a man described in the NLT, which we're reading here, as an advanced case of leprosy. Literally in the Greek, it's full of leprosy, but I think that's the idea behind it. It's an advanced case of this, whatever it is that he's got. The term lepra in the Greek can refer to a wide array of diseases. It's usually describing lesions um, or other, other swollen areas of the skin. The term not only includes Hansen's disease, which is our modern terminology for uh, what we think of in terms of leprosy, but it's also referring to psoriasis or lupus or ringworm or scalp diseases like favus. Now, the law of Moses gave specific instructions about how you're supposed to deal with things like this, identifying the presence of a skin disease. And if you ever read it, it's there in uh, Leviticus chapter 13, as you read it, it's, it's wildly imprecise, but it also in that prescribes what a person is supposed to do who has, you know, uh, been quarantined sufficiently and recovered from the condition, how they're supposed to reintegrate into the community. But it also prescribes what to do for people who have not been healed of that and who've been uh, declared as unclean. And actually, let me just read it to you because it's more impactful that way. We'll read a little bit out of Leviticus 13. 45, it says, those who suffer from a serious skin disease must tear their clothing and leave their hair uncombed. They must cover their mouth and call out, unclean, unclean, you know, obviously as they're moving around. As long as the serious disease lasts, they will be ceremonially unclean. They must live in isolation in their place outside the camp. And you just got to let those words sink in a little bit because it's real easy to read over that and think about ancient uh, Levitical laws and all. But when you think about being a person who's been declared that, to whom a priest has just given you this prognosis or diagnosis and, and, and now this is your lot in life. I mean, we think it's tough getting, you know, COVID and having to quarantine for 10 days. Think of being told that you have something that cuts you off from ever being around people ever again. Think of hearing that priest say to you while you're there that you're unclean and know what that means, that the people that you love, you're leaving behind, that your work that gave you a sense of meaning or purpose, it's gone now. You live off of whatever mercy you can find uh, to those who would come outside the community to to take care of you. It was widely assumed that a person who suffered with something like this was being punished by God for some sin. That's something we talked about extensively when we studied the book of Job. That being the case, most pious people 
would avoid anybody uh, with leprosy. Not only because it could be a communicable disease, it's not, you know, absolutely for sure, but because it could be, but also because it could make them ceremonially, ceremonially, that's not an easy word to say, unclean, and it would cut that person off then from being able to participate in their system of worship with the temple. And we know from the writings that are preserved from rabbis from around this period of time that uh, the religious leaders took great pains to avoid ever getting near a person who might be declared a leper or considered unclean this way. Uh, one famously bragged, I'm sure you've heard it quoted before, that not only would he cross a street to avoid being near a leper, but he would find an alternate street altogether to avoid being uh, near someone afflicted like that in order to maintain his own sense of purification. That is all in the background of this little story. And that, all of those details stand in stark contrast to how Jesus approached this person. There's a, a lot that's unanswered here in this. Did the man approach Jesus, get close to him and bow down? Or did he just stay at a distance and bow down and call out to Jesus? And if that's the case, then you realize it was Jesus who closed the gap there. But how did he know Jesus would respond differently than other rabbis and religious leaders? Or did he know? He doesn't seem to question whether or not Jesus can heal him, but rather he asks if Jesus is willing to do that. So that indicates that he really didn't know if Jesus would treat him differently. He just took the risk of of asking for favor. And Jesus' response, of course, is the showstopper, because it says that Jesus reached out and touched him. And there's so much in that short sentence because not only what it meant to the afflicted man to receive the, the kind touch of another human being, but so revealing about the nature of God's kingdom as it's advancing in this world. Jesus, notice in this, was not afraid of being contaminated by what had been declared as contagious and unclean. He knew that God's power advancing in this world was the greater force at work here. And he makes this simple declaration that, again, reveals so much. He says to the man, I am willing. I'm willing to do this. In other words, this is God's will, God's intent for the human race and for the world. Jesus is doing this bold thing of touching this man, and it indicates to us that God's will is not deterred by the brokenness of this world by the fallen state of this place. The law of Moses, man, it had a lot of requirements for quarantine when it came to disease. Uh, And it got wrapped into ideas of ceremonial uncleanness. And I suspect that was to maybe drive home the, the importance of it. You know, I mean, we've learned about that. You've got to quarantine to mitigate spreading diseases around. And many of these laws in the Old Testament were largely intended to preserve the health of the Old Testament people. But it morphed into something else, something more of a a fear-based grasp for righteousness, something that was driven by a fear of being contaminated. This man with leprosy is, is, uh, is a representation of the fallen state and the corrupted state of this world. It's more than just the actual physical healing of something going on here. There's something underlying this that we're supposed to see. The fact that Jesus casually reaches for this guy to touch him tells us that in the context of the kingdom, there is no place for fear of contamination by the influence of this world. 
There's no place for that here within the, the context of our Christian lives. This man with leprosy, he's, he's representative, like I said, of more than just contagions. He stands in for all of the marginalized and the outcasts of any given society. Jesus ministers to him and reveals to him God's attention is on the margins of where we live. Jesus, here's something to burn into your head. Jesus wasn't afraid of cooties. It, it wasn't something that was driving him. The leprosy didn't rub off onto Jesus. It was actually the other way around. Jesus' wholeness invaded that man. Jesus has a contagious wholeness that isn't afraid of the corruption and the brokenness of this world. He wasn't afraid of ceremonial uncleanness either. Jesus wasn't afraid of how respectable he looked or if he was being moderate enough in in dealing with this man because you realize everybody standing around him watching this go down right away is thinking, oh, he just got unclean. We're supposed to hang out with him now? (laughs) But he met the man's need right where he was. And it's just a reminder that fear is not an appropriate motivation for us as Jesus' followers. Fear of pandemics, obviously, but also fear of other influences from this world. This is not how we're supposed to live our lives, constantly identifying the boogeyman and trying to keep everything barricaded away from him. Who are we afraid of in this world? Who is it that gives us the willies? Who who do we recoil from, fearful of their influence on us? Who would we not listen to for fear of what they might say? More importantly, how does that fear compare to Jesus' actions with this leper? What fear did Jesus show in any of this? Jesus' health and God's kingdom were not in jeopardy of failing when he reached out to this guy. And that's an example I think we need to follow. I think we need to remember who it is that we're followers of and drop any vestiges of fear not allow that fear to to be some sort of guide for how it is that we interact with the people of this world. We're not afraid. Even when it comes to this pandemic, you know, Rob, why do we have to wear masks? We're not wearing masks because we're afraid. We're wearing masks because we're Christians and we love people and we want to let people know who might be afraid, we love you and you're safe with us. We'll do all that we can to see to it that you're safe. But it's not fear. We're not afraid of this. Now, it's not totally clear as to why Jesus didn't want this guy posting his healing on Insta, but it's likely that it had to do with timing. Um, Jesus seems to work a lot to the Gospels, at controlling how fast his, his notoriety grows and his status grows. So Jesus tells him to go to the priest as prescribed in Leviticus 13, if you ever take a chance to take a time to go read that. Uh, to go to the priest to get a full bill of health, a clean bill of health. And, and it wasn't that Jesus was affirming that he had been unclean before. It's just that this was a mandatory step before he could re-enter society at large. And that's actually the key in this. This becomes a transformational moment in this guy's life. And we're going to look at that in the next miracle that we'll be reading about. But it's something that it's, it's tied together with this first miracle. Something about this that, that God is trying to reveal to us about what his intent is for us as human beings through these miracles that are here. All right, I'm going to calm down. I'm getting excited. So verse 17. One day while Jesus was teaching, 
Some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law were standing nearby. It seemed these men always showed, or these men showed up from every village in all of Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. I like the way the NLT words this. It's a little, it's not a direct translation of it, but it gets to the heart of what Luke is trying to convey here. Sort of like, you know, these guys keep showing up. We didn't invite them, but they're, they're here. They're crashing our meeting. It's setting up the growing conflict that's developing, that will develop and continue to develop between Jesus and the enforcers of the established religious system of that time. And we'll see how this unfolds and, and actually increases in intensity until it culminates with the tragic, albeit triumphant, uh, end of this story. So anyway, this explains why there's a conflict that we're going to read about in the section that's coming up. So we'll keep reading verse 18. Some men carrying a paralyzed man on a, uh, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. And then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. So here we're meeting four unknown characters who enter this story carrying a paralyzed person on this makeshift stretcher out of his own little sleeping mat. And Luke is really sparse on the details here. Um, the crowds, you know, he tells us the crowds are really dense, and that's why they can't get in to, uh, close to, enough to Jesus. So they take him to the roof and clear a hole to lower him down. And this is where it's like a record scratch in my brain, because I'm like, wait a minute. How did they get on the roof of this? And how did they get a paralyzed guy up on, on the roof? Those would have been interesting details to me. But I kind of feel like Luke would be looking at me like, you're missing the point of the story here, bogging down with that. So as I keep saying, I believe this is an account of something that actually happened, and I believe it's God at work, and I believe he still will operate in that kind of power, but I also strongly believe that we're meant to read into this account, that these are here to tell us things about the nature of God's kingdom, to understand the impactful representation of these events. And and here, with these four friends... I believe what we're seeing communicated to us is that God's will is to bring hurting people to Jesus, to get broken people as close to Jesus as we can, like these four friends. There's a good point to be made that these friends remind us of what's really important, getting broken people close to Jesus. If you want a summary of what your life's mission is, that's not a bad one, to get broken people as close to Jesus as as we can. We're called to expose people to Jesus' words, to show people Jesus' love in action, to invite people to trust in his power and his authority to transform lives. So these particular guys went to radical lengths to, to do something like this. They, they even, you know, tore up someone's roof. I mean, we don't, the, the text doesn't identify whose house or whose roof it is, but it's very clear in the text it's not their roof that they're doing this with. So the flat roof on a, on a house in ancient Palestine, it would have been, uh, it would have been made of mud and straw that would have been laid out in tiles in between cross beams. So more than likely what they did was get up there and just start ripping out the mud and the straw, which would have been a looser type of a weaker material in between the cross beams to be able to lower this guy down. They do all of this work. I mean, it's enough just getting on the roof with, you know, with a, I remember when I was in high school, this is a dumb story. I can't believe I'm going to tell it. But when I was in high school and my brainstem hadn't attached yet, we, you know, on our senior day, we were like,
like, hey, man, this would be a great prank. There was a, there was a uh, farm across from our school back in those days, and there were cows in the field. And we were driving around and said, let's go get one of those cows and put it on the roof of the school. And we're like, yeah, great idea. And so we got there and even jumped over the fence and stood there with the cows. And we're like, hey, how do we get a cow on the roof? And we're like, I don't know. And then the plan fell apart from there. So the point is, getting some guy that can't move himself up onto a roof, that's no easy task. They did all of this stuff because they were determined. They were determined to see to it that their friend got as close to Jesus as possible, not as close to religion, not as close to, you know, some idea about God, but as close to this representation of who Jesus is and what it is that he's come to do as they could do. I don't think, you know, again, this isn't giving us a license to commit vandalism. I'm a vandal for Jesus. It's just meant to show us that being respectable and trying to keep the status quo isn't the priority of our mission. Because that's some crazy stuff these guys are doing. But for them, it was worth it. And we see in the longer run, it is worth it. I'm sure somebody made reparations to the guy for his roof, or maybe the guy is so stoked by the end of the story, and I'm, that's a spoiler alert, but it goes well. But, uh, it, you know, it, I'm sure it all got worked out somehow. But in the midst of that, in the middle of that activity, they did not look respectable. But they did it anyway, because they needed to get this person close to Jesus. Sometimes we've got to tear up a roof. Sometimes that means expanding our expectations about who Jesus will welcome or where it is that he'll meet them. We have to be willing to go beyond our categories of who's worthy and who's not for help. To step beyond the boundaries that we imagine that God wouldn't cross and just let Jesus make the call on all of those things. They didn't know for sure what Jesus would do with this guy. But they knew that there was a roof in the way that had to be removed. So what are the boundaries that, that keep us from reaching some people? What are the boundaries that we have in the way that would cause us to, 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 to come up short in trying to reveal who Jesus is? Skin color? Doctrinal beliefs or maybe a lack of them? Political alliances? Cultural differences? Here's a story I heard, and I hesitate to share it, but a local pastor that I've been getting to know shared with me how, you know, and this is a local thing, it shared with me how he met a woman, and and when she discovered that he was a pastor, she got excited and said, that's great, but then started bragging about her own church. And she said, oh, we love our church. We just love our church because we still don't allow the gays or the blacks in there. I'm glad I heard a few reactions. Could have been stronger. Because I think I would say to her at that point, you keep using that word church. I don't think it means what you think it means. And look, I don't know her. I just heard that story. But I believe it illustrates the kind of roof that has to be removed if we want to be within God's will in in getting people close to Jesus. And I'm all about it. I'm all about it. I say let's get our hammers and our pry bars and let's get that roof gone. Let's remove those obstacles because Jesus isn't afraid of those things. Jesus isn't afraid of lepers. Jesus isn't afraid of anything that represents the brokenness of this world. 
And our calling as those who follow him is to remove those boundaries as best we can and represent the reality of Christ's love to people. So what happens when these four friends do this extreme home makeover? All right, verse 20. Seeing their faith, Jesus said, in the NLT it says the young man, and that's an unfortunate, I'm not sure. You know, there are brilliant scholars that are behind this, this translation. I'm not, I'm, I'm puzzled by some of the choices that they make. They're smarter than me, so understand, I'm certainly not trying to denigrate their choice here, but it sh- it's literally child, my child, and I, I like that on a more theological, even philosophical level than I do young man. I think there's a, either way, whatever, you decide what you want on this. My child, your sins are forgiven. That's really the important part of it anyway. Your sins are forgiven. Verse 21. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, we've seen amazing things today. Okay, and that's where we're going to stop today. It says that that Jesus sees their faith, which more than likely means he sees a hole in the roof, and, 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 and what their faith motivated them to do, to, to get this guy here. And he tells the guy that his sins are forgiven. And that's awesome, but... I wonder what the paralyzed guy and his friends thought about that. Because I'm pretty sure they did all that work removing that roof to get this guy to Jesus in order to get him physically healed, right? And these guys up on the roof, I wonder if they're just going, oh, man, <laughs> my back is sore. Now i got to carry his forgiven butt back home. <laughs> Luke doesn't explain this, but this declaration of forgiveness is a profound moment. And it actually reveals to us why it's so important to get broken people to Jesus because God's will is to provide forgiveness and divine reconciliation to humanity, to all humanity. This magnificently reveals the whole mission of God's kingdom to reconcile humanity back to God and to restore us. That's why Paul later on in 2 Corinthians says, we, the church, have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's what this is all about. We're not the moral police. We're not anything like that. We are here to to stretch out our hands on behalf of a loving God to say, come home. He's not mad at you. He loves you. Again, it's profound, but, but we have to wonder, why did Jesus start with this declaration of forgiveness? Because in all honesty, the whole controversy that arose between he and the religious leaders is a result of Jesus making this declaration first before anything else. Because it would have been a whole lot easier just to heal the guy and everybody's excited and he's walking out, just whisper over to him, by the way, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> cool, Jesus, thanks. Uh, but remember, just like with the leprous man, people usually assigned a disability like this uh, to being a judgment from God. So, so actually, forgiveness is in question here. It's just not stated specifically. 
And the fact that Jesus declared him forgiven while he's still paralyzed indicates that his relationship with God is not connected to either his health or some illness. By forgiving him first, without any healing, Jesus is attacking the common belief that sin had caused paralysis, a a, a notion that we've got to dismiss and remove from our thinking based on what the Gospels reveal. The Pharisees accuse him of blasphemy in their thoughts, and he seems to hear it. That's one of those cool Jedi mind tricks. And, and, and he leads, it leads to this dramatic showdown. And Jesus poses this question, which is easier, to, to say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk? And it's an interesting question because both things are easy enough to say. I just said them just now. It doesn't take much effort whatsoever. But to have any, anything happen because of that, well, that's another story altogether. To have the power behind that, to, to see something result from those words, well, that's, that's important. So the healing of this man then becomes the tangible proof of the power behind Jesus' first words. In other words, let me explain. The, the man's sins were forgiven. And that's something that you couldn't see was true. You couldn't look at him and say, oh, yeah, I can see now that your sins are forgiven. He was still paralyzed, remember. So, you know, there was no way to be able to to empirically verify that. The man's ability to walk gets restored, and everyone is able to see that. And the two then become connected, verifying and 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 confirming the reality of those first words, the forgiveness of sins. Both statements were true, but one is given tangible evidence, and that evidence is meant to reinforce our trust in the intangible truth of God's forgiveness. God has forgiven you. God has forgiven you of everything, everything done, everything past or present or future. Because of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, God has forgiven you. Easy words to say. But we have to trust and believe in the power behind those words. We have to trust and believe in the reality of what it means to live a life that is now forgiven by God, the highest authority that there is. And it actually becomes a symbolic picture of what happens to us uh, as we embrace this this loving forgiveness of God. We see what happens to him uh, in the, 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 the paralyzed man. God's will is the transformation of our lives. This is God's intent for us to restore our dignity and to heal us from those dehumanizing patterns we sometimes get stuck in in, in this life. So what are the areas of our lives that have us paralyzed? Where can't we seem to get out of our rut? Where does it feel like we can't move forward? We never see change the way we might want to see change. What holds us down? What keeps us back from embracing the reality of God's forgiveness of us? Fear or shame or guilt, maybe perfectionism, a sense of failure or a constant remembrance of some past failure? Is it confusion about what's happening or where I should go? What keeps us from freedom? What keeps us from feeling useful? This story reminds us that if we'll first embrace God's loving grace, well, that rhymes. If we'll we'll believe that without working for it or earning it, we are loved and forgiven by God, if we'll embrace that love, 
and see ourselves in light of that love, it will transform us. If we can believe in that unthinkable love that God has for us, it will change who we are and how we understand reality and how it is that we move through this present reality. Believing we're loved by God will empower us to rise above those dehumanizing habits and patterns in our lives. It'll empower our lives to find the meaning and the purpose that's there inherent in all of us. God's love for us reveals our value. And knowing that we're valued by God frees us from trying to to look to our fellow human for constant validation. It frees us to tend to other people's needs, to ease other people's burdens, to care more about others than the self because we know the self is in the loving embrace of the God who made us, of a divine parent who cares about us and cares about our well-being. That's the transformational power of God's forgiveness in our lives. It reshapes us from the inside out. If we'll believe in it, if we'll trust that it's true, he'll take us there. He'll do that work in our lives. The fact that that Jesus was able to say to this guy, stand up and, and take your mat and go home, tells us what the transformational power was all about. It wasn't just... It wasn't just the restoration of his limbs being able to be used again. He wasn't just all stoked like, oh man, I can dance on TikTok again. It was the thing that was going on that was restoring him to his home. Go home. Just like with the man with leprosy being told to go to the priest, going home means a restoration of his place and his purpose in life, a restoration of relationships and easing of the burdens of others, especially those guys that loved him there. It was an easing of burden from them. For them, this transformational power of the forgiveness of God will revolutionize our lives. You know, I will tell you that in 20-something years of preaching God's word, the, the consistent complaint that I've heard is that I talk too much about grace. Got an email just the other day. You don't talk enough about sin, you talk too much about grace. I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm not because the only cure for any sin is the recognition and the knowledge of God's grace, of his great and transformational love at work in our lives, drawing us higher, drawing us out into a life of meaning and purpose in him. Listen, we can stand there and there's plenty of places where you can just get loaded down with affirmations of your guilt and unworthiness. There's plenty of places to find that. And I don't think most people even need that. I think most of us know it already. What we need to hear is that divine voice whispering on the wind, I love you. I know, I know you messed up, but I love you. I have something so much better for you. Follow me. Come with me and I'll show it to you. This story reminds us of the importance of that. This is the will of God. God's not hindered by a broken world. He wants to gather up hurting people to forgive and to transform us, to bring us back to original intent. Image bearers of God let loose in the world. Let's accept God's forgiving love and all the possibilities that come along with that. Let's look 
at the other hurting people in this world around us and do all that we can to get them closer to Jesus, closer to his love, closer to his transforming power, allowing his love to shine through us and into this world. Let's believe in the transformational power of forgiveness and then let's see how that affects the world around us where we've been placed. Right on? Right on. All right, very cool. Father, we just ask you, Lord, to, to do this work in our lives. Lord, we believe that you, by your Spirit, are the one who affects the changes in us. And Lord, I know many of us come in here with all kinds of burdens. I mean, we are human beings. There is no telling all the things that we can get up to that cause us to stumble, that make us feel ashamed, that cause us to struggle with fear and fear of you. And I pray, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, as we've gotten into your Word, I pray that you, by your Spirit, will now come and reaffirm your love for us, your forgiveness through Jesus, and help us to live that forgived life. Help each person here as we commit to that this morning, to live that forgived life into this world, to find our confidence in your love for us so that we're not constantly nagging the people around us to tell us we're okay. We fall into your arms and we hear you tell us you're okay. Do that work, that deep work that only you can do in our lives and in our spirits. And we ask you to do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And if you'll stand with us, we're going to sing this song. And as we're singing this song, just bring that before the Lord. If you came in here with a burden, if you came in here feeling paralyzed or like you can't move forward or find that grace, sing this song to Jesus and see what he says. Listen for him. See what you encounter here in the presence of the Almighty God.